Hey Conjurers, I'm Sham. And I'm Steph. Thanksgiving is meant to be a joyous time when families come together and appreciate each other and all the blessings they have. However, a lot of extended families, whether it's due to religious, political, or personality differences, find Thanksgiving more of a battleground than a peaceful gathering. For one Florida family, the battle got way too real. On November 26 of 2009, Jim and Muriel Sitton were preparing for a grand Thanksgiving feast. They were hosting this year's annual family get-together and were expecting around 16 guests. Being South Florida, 55 miles north of Miami, November weather isn't cold and rainy like it is here in the Pacific Northwest. The temperature was expected to be in the low 80s. Jim and Muriel set up tables inside for the adults and outside on the patio for the kids. Mariel's aunt and uncle, Carol and Michael Marriage, always attended the party every year. Their son, Paul, however, did not. In fact, the previous year, when Mariel's parents, Tony, and his wife, Ramon Joseph, had hosted, there had been an argument between Tony and his brother-in-law, Michael, where Tony threatened to cancel the event altogether if they brought their son, Paul. Whoa, threatening to cancel the whole thing if they even try and bring their son? What did this guy do to piss them off? Well, you see, Paul had been struggling with mental illness since he was a teenager. In early childhood, he had a happy, carefree life. He excelled at school, making honor roll, and graduating third in his class at Gulliver Prep. They were an affluent family, and he and his sisters, twins Lisa and Carla, never wanted for anything. Around the time Paul turned 18, he started to develop worrying signs. It started with insomnia and a growing fear of germs leading him to take several three-hour showers a day. This developed into full-on OCD and was officially diagnosed with schizophrenia. His family got him help through hospitals and specialists. Tony Joseph, as a doctor, had even treated him personally for some time. Despite his family's efforts, Paul just became more and more violent. He couldn't keep a job and would randomly refuse to take his medications. Carol and Michael took over control, supervision, and management of Paul's life including his accommodations, mental health treatment, transportation, and available spending money. He lived with them until one incident when Paul waved a gun around at his mother, screaming nonsense, and then unsuccessfully attempt to kill himself by shooting himself in the chest. Michael went to the gun shop and begged the man not to sell guns to Paul anymore, but with Paul being 35 years old, his parents really couldn't stop him from anything. Okay, yeah. I get why they really didn't want him at family holidays. I don't have much experience with people who have schizophrenia, but it must be really hard and even scary to know someone suffering from that. I've had to deal with someone close to me having schizophrenia. And if he wasn't on his medications, a lot of his actions and thoughts were violent and unpredictable. So after the terrifying gun incident, what did his parents do? His violent outbursts were just becoming too much. They bought Paul a beautiful condo and hired a housekeeper to take care of the cleaning and cooking. Paul felt abandoned and pushed away when his parents moved him out on his own. He didn't want to live alone. He wanted them to take care of him themselves. He stopped taking his medications altogether and became a recluse, allowing only the housekeeper to enter his condo. Outside of his parents, no one in the family had heard from him in years. 
His parents bought him a beautiful condo, rent-free, and a housekeeper to do the cooking and cleaning. Yeah, what a hard knock life. Most people are lucky if your parents let you stay on their phone plan. He was lucky to have all of that. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Okay, so now back to Thanksgiving 2009. Leading up to Thanksgiving, Paul had been asking his parents about the party. They invited him to come along, but figured he'd never show up. He never did. They decided not to tell the rest of the family about Paul's interest in the get-together because they didn't want a repeat of last year's argument. That is until the entire family, already at the Sins house, overhears a phone call Michael receives from Paul asking for directions to the house, stating that he's on his way. Carol whispered a disturbing sentiment to her daughter Lisa. The conversation went like this, I hope he doesn't come to kill us all tonight, to which Lisa replied, Mom, it came to my mind too, but don't say that because Dad will get upset. Oh my god, if that's your first thought, don't give him the address. It's not okay to invite someone without telling the host, but that is not a normal thing to think when inviting someone to a family dinner. Uh, yeah. If they had that gut feeling and he's mentioned killing them before, why endanger themselves and everyone else? I know you said he has mental health issues and violent tendencies, but did he have it out for anyone specifically there at the party to make his mom say something like that? Paul had specific anger issues towards his uncle Tony because he believed Dr. Joseph actually caused his mental illness, and he harbored vicious jealousy and resentment for his sisters. Years prior, his sister Carla had received a restraining order against him after he threatened to slit her throat, but after years of no contact, she let it lapse. Michael knew his son had serious issues, but thought his interest in a family gathering showed improvement. The rest of the family had their doubts, but decided to put it aside and enjoy the holiday anyway. That's crazy. He would make me so nervous. But family is family, I guess. It seems like the family is slightly on guard, but hoping for the best scenario. So what happened at this Thanksgiving dinner? When Paul arrived, he seemed surprisingly good. At dinner, he talked and joked with his brother-in-law, and although he didn't eat anything, he appeared to be enjoying himself. After the dinner, the family gathered around the piano for their family tradition of singing Christmas carols together. Jim and Meryl's six-year-old daughter, Michaela, stole the show. She loved to sing and dance, and the family showered the adorable girl in praise and attention. After the singing had ended, it was time for Michaela to go to bed. Her parents tucked her in, sharing sweet goodnights while the rest of the guests talked and served coffee and pie. About an hour later, everyone was still laughing and enjoying each other's company when Paul got up and went out to his car for a few minutes. When he returned, all hell broke loose. 911 calls started flooding in from neighbors, but no one knew what was going on. All they could report was gunshots and people screaming. We have recordings of some of these 911 calls on our website if you want to hear the chaos from that night. Those 911 calls are chaotic for sure. It's just a bunch of screaming and confusion. They sound like something out of a horror film. Yeah. That Thanksgiving you described sounds so normal. Happy and almost perfect. Up until everything turned, what exactly happened? Police arrived at the house in minutes. When they walked in, they found blood everywhere and hysterical people screaming and crying. After analyzing the scene and interviewing the guests, they started to put the pieces together. The first victim was 33-year-old Carla, who had been in the kitchen at the time. The shot came out of nowhere and she died instantly. 
At the sound of the first shot, everyone panicked. Jim didn't know what was going on, so he started herding people towards the backyard. The next victim was 33-year-old Lisa, who was pregnant at the time. She was shot as she was running for the back door. She managed to stumble her way out to the patio before collapsing and dying there in the backyard. The shooter then seemed to just start shooting people at random. Lisa's husband Patrick was shot in the stomach and crumbled to the floor of the living room. Jesus, that's horrible. Yeah, it's really sad. Was anyone else hurt? Jim noticed his 76-year-old mother-in-law laying on the ground and thought she had fainted. Her husband, Dr. Tony Joseph, was kneeling next to her, so Jim knew she was in good hands. What he didn't know was that she had been shot in the shoulder, and Tony was doing everything in his power to stop the bleeding. Tony told police that as he was trying to save his wife, their nephew Paul walked over and shot her again in the chest. Paul then aimed the gun at Tony and said, I've waited 20 years for this, and pulled the trigger. The gun jammed, and Paul walked away, pulling out a new gun. Mariel, who had been hiding in the closet, quietly made her way to the side door looking for anyone who could help her sneak back in for her little girl. She fainted when she saw Paul's shadow walking down the hall towards her daughter's room. Patrick, who was lying bleeding on the living room floor, watched in horror as Paul casually walked into Michaela's room and fired two shots. He stepped out of the room but immediately hesitated. Paul leaned back in the room and fired one more shot into the little girl's body. Patrick later told investigators, It was quick. He went in and shot her and came out, and almost instantly, like a second thought, went right back in and shot her again. I guess to make sure she was dead. No. That monster. That little girl was sleeping. She was innocent and did nothing to deserve that. She definitely didn't, and I somewhat understand why Mariel fainted. The anxiety she felt knowing what could happen to her baby girl might have been too much to comprehend. Those poor parents. Jim came running back into the house and went down the hall. He slid into his baby's room and threw himself on her bed. He held her tightly in his arms, begging her to stay with him. No one saw Paul leave, but police arrived shortly after and took Michaela and Patrick to the hospital. It was too late for the twin sisters and their aunt. They couldn't be helped. Police kept the sittings at their home for hours for questioning while their six-year-old daughter was fighting for her life at the hospital. They received the call from the hospital while still talking with the police that little Michaela didn't make it. Patrick was in critical condition and placed in a medically induced coma. He still didn't know that his pregnant wife was dead. Oh man, that is heartbreaking. Honestly, I don't think the police would have been able to keep me away from my daughter in that situation. They can question me later. Yeah, I couldn't talk to anyone until I knew my baby was okay. Where was Paul? Witnesses say that a heavyset man had fled the scene in a blue car. The manhunt for Paul marriage swung into full gear as police tried to locate his whereabouts and provide justice for the family. In Paul's condo, they found receipts for at least four guns and ammunition. He even asked for a scope to be attached to a rifle, saying that he wanted to use it for hunting. They also found proof of a withdrawal from that week in the amount of $12,000 that they now realize was his plan for living on the run. The family was terrified that he might come back to finish the job, but the sentence insisted on going home where they could grieve surrounded by their daughter's memory. Police couldn't stop the family from holding a memorial, but they pleaded with the family to hold it at a local high school so that police could better protect the family and the attendants. This poor family. I would be afraid too. 
He clearly had planned this out carefully. Yeah, I wouldn't go home, though. Not until he's caught. Why risk him coming back again? He's clearly out of his mind. Please tell me they caught him. By December 7th, Paul had been added to the FBI Most Wanted list. He was soon to be featured in an episode of America's Most Wanted. Commercials highlighting the upcoming episode started airing, and the manager at a Palm Beach motel called the Edgewater Lodge saw the commercial and immediately called the police. She said the guest staying in room 14 matched that man's description, though he had a shaved head now and had given her a different name. Paul had covered the 2007 blue Toyota Camry with a tarp in the motel parking lot, so she bravely snuck out and took a peek under the tarp to report the license plate number to the police. Oh my god, that woman is so brave. If he had looked out and saw her, she would have been dead. The fact that she knew what he was capable of and still took the risk for the sake of catching this man makes her a real hero. Absolutely. So did they catch him then? The police ran the plates, and they didn't find a match to Paul's vehicle. However, the plates were previously registered to a car owned by his father. Based on the crucial bit of information received in the tip, police believed they had enough probable cause to move in on their target. When police arrived at the motel, they saw lights on the second floor room where they believed Paul was staying. He had barricaded the door at the mattress from the bed, but police busted through, and expecting violent resistance tased Paul before he had a chance to react. As they led him out of the motel room, reporters caught his rambling on tape. Paul was heard saying the following, and I quote, 18 years I've been tormented. I've had chronic medical problems, mental problems. It's been a nightmare. I didn't even know what I was doing. It was the only thing I could do. I went several times to turn myself in. I was waiting for my parents to maybe make a statement and tell me to turn myself in. I didn't know what to do, and today, right now, watching on TV, my cousin, I didn't know. I've been wanting. I didn't know what to do. I just can't believe I've done all this. I just can't believe it. End quote. He's clearly unstable, but I don't know if I believe that he didn't know what he was doing. It was planned out too well. Oh, I believe it was definitely premeditated. At least now the rest of the family is safe. After weeks on the run, police finally had him. Once news of his arrest reached the family, Jim went down to the police station to personally thank the officers who made the arrest. The family was now able to let go of fear and start the grieving process for their loved ones they had lost. Patrick spent three months in a coma. When he finally awoke, he was unable to speak or move, but the doctors believed that he could recover in time. Lying there with tubes in his throat, he was tortured by the vivid memories of gunfire and ambulances. A week out of his coma, voiceless and all but paralyzed, Patrick prayed with the priest in his hospital room. The priest accidentally let slip what seemed to be the cruelest phrase, let her watch over him. That was how Patrick had learned, three months after the massacre, that his wife Lisa was dead, not pregnant at home with their first child. On that day in March, his gut heaved, but his immobile body refused to express the anguish raging inside. What a horrible way to find out that your wife and unborn child is dead. Yeah, that sounds like a nightmare. I feel so bad for him. Steph will tell us more about what happened after Paul's arrest after this short break. While being interviewed by police, Paul seemed out of it and concerned about his future. He implicated himself multiple times without directly talking about what he had done. He rambled on to investigators saying things like, and I quote, 
It's impossible, you know, to reconcile what happened to me. And it's just not even real. I'm not violent. I've never been violent. I'm not a criminal or a drug addict. It's just unbelievable what I've done to everybody. End quote. He seemed so detached. It was as if he was talking about someone else. He frequently asked investigators, how long will this take? What's the worst case scenario? He called his parents from jail begging for forgiveness. He tearfully rambled on about how everyone had been right about him, saying, and I quote, I think about them. I think about heaven, you know. I think about them constantly. I don't know how I could have done what I've done to everybody. Everybody I've hurt. He continued by saying to his dad, I want to salvage what's left of our relationship. I love you so much, end quote. His dad responded sounding cold and defeated and said, We never stopped loving you, but we have nothing. You have nothing. It's a total nightmare. Our lives have changed forever. When Paul asked to talk to his mother, his dad told him she was devastated and didn't want to talk to him. Almost as if the pain and shattered life of his parents didn't sink in, he continued with, Hopefully after the case, I get sent to a hospital. What he did was something the average person could never forgive anyone for, but I don't know how I'd react if I were in their shoes. That's still their son, even if he took the life of their daughters. I agree. I totally understand why his mom didn't want to talk to him, though. It's unfortunate. I would still want justice, but at the same time, real mental health for him as a parent. Paul was secluded in the mental health unit of the jail until his scheduled court appearance in February. He was then charged with four counts of premeditated murder and three counts of attempted first-degree murder. The death penalty was originally considered and the defense team started preparing their insanity defense. His attorney planned to call experts on schizophrenia and obsessive-compulsive disorder. Now, there's a difference between what we see on the street and think of as insane and the legal definition of insanity. In Florida, in order to believe you're not guilty by reason of insanity, the jury has to believe that you didn't know what you were doing, didn't understand the consequences of what you were doing, or didn't understand that what you were doing was wrong. Which I find hard to believe because he had a premeditated plan. He didn't just get triggered and snap on a family member. He bought guns, brought the guns to the party, walked out to his car to get the guns, and came back into his cousin's home to murder everybody. Not to mention the money he had taken out knowing he would have to live on the run afterwards. Yeah, in this case, he knowingly committed that crime. But a trial really could have gone either way. Medical records made public as part of his criminal prosecution revealed that Paul had received shock therapy, had repeatedly been committed to mental hospitals, and that he had talked about dreaming of killing his family members. Paul sat stoically through the hearing. He told the judge that although he was taking a number of antipsychotic and antidepressant drugs, he was lucid enough to know that he wanted to plead guilty. In October 2011, Paul pled guilty after making a plea deal that would take the death penalty off the table. Part of the deal was that Paul would waive his rights to any appeals. Patrick, who had lost his wife and unborn child, as well as being severely injured in the shooting himself, said that he was eager to move on from the tragedy instead of enduring years of appeals. A gold wedding band stood out on Patrick's finger as he tried to convey to Judge Marks the magnitude of the hole left in his heart. 
Okay, one, I have never personally heard of shock therapy being successful, and I didn't know it was something that was still being used to treat patients. Two, I get where Patrick is coming from because at this point, he lost it all. I don't think I'd want to keep reliving that nightmare in court. Absolutely. Patrick never got to meet his own baby. And yeah, I was shocked that shock therapy is still even a thing. No pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) Did he say anything else? Yeah, in Patrick's eyes, his brother-in-law was nothing more than a fat, lazy failure who had never held down a job, never had a girlfriend, and stayed home all day playing on a computer. Patrick said this defendant stole the lives of four of the most beautiful people because he was jealous, because he was angry, and because he didn't want to see anyone doing better than him. Yet, he approved of the plea deal. He explained that he wanted to pick up the pieces and did not want to endure 20 years of appeals. You know what? I'm not mad at his statement. I can't say I'd be any nicer. He has every right to hate this guy. It was a savage reply, but I respect it. Paul's parents, Carol and Michael, stumbled through reading their letters to the judge, trying to reconcile the loss of their twin daughters with the mercy they wanted for their son who killed them. Michael read, They will always be my little girls. But he and his wife told the judge they supported the plea agreement. But Michaela's grieving father, Jim, begged the judge not to accept the deal, even falling to his knees in the courtroom, clutching a lock of his little girl's hair. Jim urged the judge to delay the sentencing so he could prepare a proper presentation with an attorney to detail his argument. I could never be a judge for this reason. I couldn't bear to see a grieving parent beg for justice for their child. I can barely even read that without crying. I mean, just reading this case and hearing how Michaela went breaks my heart. I hope his plea alone was enough to show the seriousness of what Paul had done. Paul sought her out. He could have easily left her alone that night if he wanted to. Yeah, so if anyone in the courtroom knew how this family felt, especially Patrick, it was the judge. He himself had lost his pregnant wife when she was shot and killed in 1994. He told the grieving relatives that he understood their pain and offered his own life strategy for getting through each day under the weight of such a tremendous loss. He said, I make sure that I go out and do my best to live a good life every day, and I try to remember every good thing I did. I believe one day I'll see them again. After hearing from all of the relatives of the victims, Judge Joseph Marks sentenced Paul Marriage to seven consecutive life sentences. As part of the agreement, the defendant agreed to waive any rights of appeal. You'll never see the light of day again, Marx told the now 37-year-old Paul, in front of a packed courtroom. Paul Marriage is currently serving his sentence in a Florida correctional facility. The sentence, after the hearing, said they thought the Palm Beach state attorney signed off on the plea agreement for political reasons and said their faith in the justice system was shattered. Jim said, and I quote, I now have more faith in the prisoners and Paul's fellow inmates to take justice than I do in the state attorney's office, because at least in prison, they know what to do with baby killers. Muriel Sitton who at 50 years old, was five months pregnant with another daughter, said, We're having a girl, but it's very bittersweet. There will always be someone missing. 
Merrill told reporters that they would shake the dust off their feet and try their best to leave the case behind them. While we have talked about it before, if you commit a crime against a child or a woman, it's likely going to be known in prison. And there are plenty of men in there that have nothing to lose and will come after you for it. Yep. Honestly, I can't even pretend that I would feel differently if I was in those parents' shoes. Paul will be held accountable even if it's after his trial at the hands of an inmate. It's very possible. The actions of Paul that horrible Thanksgiving ripped this family apart in more ways than one. After his sentencing, that family started filing civil lawsuits against each other. Jim and Muriel filed the first complaint alleging that Paul's parents created a foreseeable zone of risk by purposely concealing their dinner invitation to Paul, despite having such knowledge of his likelihood to do harm. In addition, the complaint stated that the marriages maintained a special guardianship relationship with Paul, given the fact that they completely supported him financially. The Sittens had not seen the killer for 13 years before he arrived on their doorstep, uninvited by them, but invited by his parents. While aware of Paul's mental illness, they were unaware of the severity of it. If they were around Paul weekly, I'd understand why his parents felt the need to invite him. But 13 years? They don't even know who Paul is or what he's capable of outside of what his parents have told them. I totally get why they blamed his parents. He didn't even know the address of his cousin's house where the party was going to be. If they hadn't invited him, he wouldn't have been able to show up and do this. They were the only ones in the scenario who could have stopped Paul from coming, and they likely knew he wasn't on his medication and taking his mental health seriously. Jim Sitton said in court, If someone brought a rattlesnake or a pit bull to your home without your permission, and that animal started attacking and killing people, wouldn't you hold that person responsible? That's what this is, seeking justice with every means of our disposal. The lawsuit was eventually dismissed in 2012 after it was determined that the marriages had no legal right or ability to control the actions of their son. That sucks. Legally, I get it, but this is one set of parents I feel should be a little more apologetic and understanding to the role that they played in this horrible scenario that played out. Yeah, I'm not sure if they had a legal responsibility to prevent it, but they certainly had an ethical responsibility here. So you said lawsuits. Did anyone else in their family sue? Yeah. That wasn't close to the only suit filed in the wake of these murders. Patrick Knight, a lawyer himself, also sued his former in-laws for failing to prevent the killings, including the death of their daughter, his wife, Lisa. Through eight counts, Patrick's complaint, in essence, attempted to base the marriage's negligence on two things. First, the complaint alleged that the marriages created a foreseeable zone of risk by inviting Paul to the Thanksgiving dinner, all the while knowing that their son had made specific threats of violence against those in attendance. Second, Patrick alleged that the marriages assumed a duty to serve as Paul's custodian, which they breached by failing to provide adequate supervision, guidance, control, direction, security, monitoring, and management of his actions. Though they are not legally responsible for this grown-ass man, they did know about his previous threats and violent actions he was capable of, so I completely understand where Patrick is coming from. Agreed. So is that it, or did these lawsuits continue? Michael and Carol, Paul's parents, then filed a countersuit against the Sittens, 
alleging that the Sittens were to blame for the bloodbath. In papers filed in Palm Beach County Circuit Court, Michael and Carol Marriage blamed dinner hosts Jim and Mariel Sitton and Mariel's father, Dr. Tony Joseph, for their son's deadly rampage, claiming had the Sittens stopped Paul from entering their home, he wouldn't have been able to open fire on the guests. They also accused Jim Sitton of defamation for repeatedly claiming they invited Paul to the gathering without alerting other family members, knowing of his propensity for violence. Jim made it appear that they had orchestrated the devastating chain of events. Michael and Carol claim everyone in the family got together regularly to celebrate holidays and they were well aware of Paul's mental demons. Dr. Joseph, Carol's brother, even treated him. They continued with the sentiment that if the Sittens were concerned that he was going to be a problem that day, then they should have stopped him. It was their house. They should have protected their family as well as the marriage family if they were concerned. I'm sorry, but hell no. This has gotten so messy and honestly disrespectful. Had your son showed up because you know you gave him the address and they tried to stop him at the door, I cannot imagine him not going to his car, grabbing his weapons, and shooting everyone anyways. How dare them? Right? I get it if they were upset that their family tried to legally sue them over what happened, but take some responsibility for your actions and don't go add to the pain of these poor parents. Please tell me no one bought their petty-ass lawsuit. Unfortunately, we don't know because the outcome of these lawsuits weren't available to the public. The marriage's attorney said they would never have filed suit against the Sittens if they hadn't filed suit against them first. Their attorney said, lost in the venom that has been heaped on the marriages is the enormity of their loss. They lost two daughters and in a way their son, and they'll never have any grandchildren now. The attorney who represented the Sittens and Dr. Joseph said her clients are outraged and devastated by these allegations. This family is likely irreparably ripped apart after such horrific loss, but life still goes on. Patrick Knight, for example, still a Miami attorney, began touring, giving speeches on how he learned to walk again after the shooting, how he learned to swallow, how he learned to sleep alone. His speeches attempt to teach others about overcoming challenges when tragedy strikes. He doesn't dwell much on the particulars of his tragedy, but rather describes his own odyssey from that harrowing day. From loss and mourning and near-certain death to his reclaimed life. Thanksgiving is one of the most deadly American holidays. Drunk driving, food poisoning, and violent family arguments all spike during this holiday. For many, it isn't just a day for eating too much and watching football. Many people start to feel overwhelmed and depressed during the holidays. 64% of people with mental illnesses report holidays make their conditions worse. High expectations, loneliness, and stress can lead to the holiday blues during the season from Thanksgiving to New Year's. In most cases, symptoms are temporary, but they can be serious. Do not ignore the warning signs. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental illness or holiday blues, please reach out for help. NAMI offers support and education programs for families and individuals living with mental health conditions. NAMI recognizes that the key concepts of recovery, resilience, and support are essential to improving the wellness and quality of life of all persons affected by mental illness. 
Find your local NAMI location at nami.org slash find support or call their helpline at 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 800-950-6264. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode was done by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Alina. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjured Podcast for our question of the week. Sham, what's our conjure tip of the week? Today, I want to talk about rose quartz. This is the stone of universal love. It restores trust and harmony in relationships, encouraging unconditional love. Rose quartz opens you up to all kinds of love from healing communication with family to developing a deeper bond with spouses and friends, and even encouraging self-care. Rose Quartz purifies and opens the heart at all levels to promote love, self-love, friendship, deep inner healing, and feelings of peace. Rose Quartz has a gentle energy that wraps you in love like a blanket. I keep one of these crystals in my daughter's room and my own. I think we can all use a little more love and peace these days. Okay, Conjurers, we'll be back on Tuesday with another episode. Until Until next time, stay vigilant, Conjurers. Conjurers.